0: Well, Blowing in the Wind is the latest exhibition from photographer and associate professor at AUT's School of Art and Design, Fiona Amundsen. It's just opened at Melbourne's Photo 2024. It's on until the end of March. And in it, she explores the aftermath of nuclear testing in the Pacific, wanting to photograph the usually invisible radiation that remains in the environment and the people to this day. What was it, though, about Guam specifically?
1: Well, Guam is a really interesting context where Guam was never a site for uh, nuclear testing, but Guam is downwind from the Marshall Island tests, and the Marshall Island tests, as you probably know, were the largest test ever, Castle Bravo and um, they received downwind radiation, and they're still, even now, fighting to get proper recognition from the US government in terms of the effects of that radiation. And I just found that to be a really interesting case that, you know, showed how this history is quite literally living on in the present.
0: And you wanted to photograph the radiation.
1: Yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that turned out to be quite a difficult process. Um, so film, photographic film, is obviously sensitive to radiation. And of course, radiation is the sun, but it also involves ionising radiation from nuclear weapons. I also just want to put a disclaimer in that I'm not a scientist, so um, please forgive me if I get the science incorrect. Mm-hmm. So film is much more sensitive than we are, than humans are. And in a way, it is a device that can, in inverted commas, see radiation, because the radiation registers on the film. So I thought this would be an interesting way to try and visualise, you know, what literally has no image, meaning ionising radiation, but also something that has no image in terms of contemporary politics and an inability to acknowledge
0: quite how that history is affecting uh, local populations. Now, you mentioned that film is more sensitive to radiation than the human body. But but what happens to film when it does come into contact with radiation? Yeah, so remember the olden days before digital
1: and how if you put your film, if you happen to pack it into your luggage that you were checking in, when you'd get that film back and you'd process it, it would have been affected by the radiation that looks at our baggage because it's much stronger. And basically, the radiation affects the film by fogging. And you end up with sort of dark, greyish, if it's black and white, dark, greyish patches of light exposure. So overall, you just see these lines of light that have occurred
0: on the film that are not to do with the images that you've made. People will be able to take a look at some of the images on our website, rnz.co.nz Saturday. But tell us a little bit about how you picked the subjects and then how you went about making sure that the film had come into contact with that radiation?
1: Yeah, so it, it's an interesting process in the sense of I had originally wanted to photograph in Guam and uh, Tinian Island, and of course Tinian Island is where the first atomic bombs that were used in warfare departed from. It's a tiny island, it's it's incredibly beautiful, but its history is palpable. So I'd wanted to photograph in these locations, and I use large-format black-and-white film. So we're talking sheets of film. I was going to photograph and then bring it back to Aotearoa. And my original aim was to try and irradiate the film here using medical technologies. And I'd been working with University of Auckland's med school, their cancer research unit. And they were very excited about this project because for them, they were going to try and basically be able to control the radiation beam. So they have what's called a hot source um, that they use for cancer research. And so we were all sort of good to go with trying these tests. This is obviously before I'd gone to Guam, etc. cetera. And um, anyway, to cut a long story short, in terms of the radiation, I can't remember the exact title of this act, mm. but there is an act for the handling of radioactive materials, you know, used in research, etc. Mm. And in that act, there is a clause that says that a hot source cannot be used in the production of artworks. And so that just cancelled the whole project in a way. So Um, it would
0: have been illegal for you to use this technology or this mechanism to actually develop the film? Correct, according to the act. So when you hit that roadblock, what did you do? What was the next sort of next cab off the rank? Yeah, so that was a huge roadblock Mm. in the development
1: of the project. But I mean they were great, the scientists that I was working with, they told me about this process called chemiluminescence, which is a process that's used in Western blot DNA testing. Mm. And in um, layperson's terms, chemiluminescence, if you think of a glow stick, when you break it open, that chemical reaction, that's a chemiluminescence process. So it's that kind of glowing yellow or green iridescent light. They said to me, oh, why don't you try that? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, it's not quite radiation, but it's a process that would fog the film because obviously it's so bright. And so I just did some experiments with that in the darkroom at AUT where I work, Mm. and that produced this. So I put it, literally put it into the developer. And as you agitate the developer, it would disperse and then lose its glow. But in the process, it fogged the film. Mm. And so when you look at the images, those white kind of flares, mm. that's from the chemiluminescence. But then the other part of the story is when I went to Guam, I went to an area in southern Guam where. If you're standing on this pier, you can look out and see Coco's Lagoon. It's not very far away. And Coco's Lagoon was a site where military radioactive military hardware was towed there after the Marshall Island tests and, in inverted commas, decontaminated. So I gathered that seawater mm. and used that to process the film, and then I also added in the chemiluminescence into the processing developing while I was doing it. And so that's how you get this weird sort of greyish... It's almost like a glow, Mm. and then the white flares are the chemiluminescence.
0: So how did you kind of hit on that idea to use the water from Guam?
1: Well, it was really just a test, Mm. and I mean, I had a hunch that it would have trace level of radiation. And so when I went to Guam, I took three images that were all exactly the same, and I processed one just using normal tap water, and then the second using the seawater, and then the third with the seawater and the chemiluminescence. And the middle one, which was just with the seawater, had a marked fogging compared to the one
0: processed using just tap water. So that would seem to indicate that there is still residual radioactive material in that seawater. Yeah, but it'll be very at a trace, trace level. Mm. You gathered the water... Yeah. and you did the you photographed and you did all the processing while you were over there.
1: Yeah, so um, I was really lucky. I was staying, I was house sitting with someone, so I had a little bathroom that I could um, process everything in, and I had a portable tank. So I just collected the seawater in you know two liter bottles, went back to where I was staying. I had already bought the chemiluminescence over with me, and I had the photographic chemicals, and I just started the process. Yeah, how tricky is it to set
0: up a dark room in someone's bathroom?
1: Oh, it's super easy, because the, the tank I was using, it, it's what's called a light-tight tank. So you um, load the film in a black bag, which looks a little bit like a straitjacket, so that's light-tight. And then the way the tank's designed is you can open it to put the chemicals in and, and pour the chemicals out without fogging the film.
0: It's pretty hard even to get your hands on camera film <laughs> these days. Do, is that something that you you specifically wanted to work with rather than digital photography?
1: I've always worked with film, and it is hard to get. But uh, you can you can buy it from companies, various companies, um, and if you put it in the freezer, it actually lasts for a long time. <laughs> um, but the reason I chose to work with film is because of that relationship to to radiation, whether it be from sunlight or ionising radiation. Mm. Ionising radiation affects digital technology entirely differently. Um, it will wipe out the the memory, basically the memory card. And so it, d- it doesn't do the same thing. It doesn't visualise radiation in the same sort of way.
0: Mm. From your own perspective, though, as an artist, mm. what is the difference between working with the digital image and the film image?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so when you work with analogue photography, so that's film, the way film works is, you know, you'll take a photograph, which requires light. Um, and if it's natural daylight then that's radiation and you take the photograph and then the image is lying or sitting latent in the composition of the film and the emulsion of the film the silver halide crystals which are what is light sensitive and it sits there latent waiting to be kind of for want of a better term brought into the world through the processing and I was really interested in, in this idea of the latent image the image that sits there waiting until you know we can see it And that ionizing radiation does a similar thing in our DNA. Now, this is where I, you know, I want to make a disclaimer again that I'm not a scientist. So I don't fully understand the nuance of how ionizing radiation affects our DNA. But what I do understand is that it, it resides in the DNA. And of course, we'll pass that on to generations after us. And that's why you see these birth defects or cancers in generations after those who are directly exposed to the point of radiation. And so I started to think about how radiation is also similar to the photographic image, how it holds this latency. And there was a beautiful connection there to be made. And that's in a way also why I started working with the chemiluminescence as a way to sort of allude to this idea of the latent ionizing radiation that sits in DNA and that
0: relationship to the latent image that sits in photographic film. It's Saturday morning with Susie Ferguson here on RNZ National. My guest is Fiona Amundsen, an Auckland-based artist, also an associate professor at AUT. We're talking about her exploring radiation in the Pacific in her new exhibition that's opening in Melbourne. It's called Blowing in the Wind these experiments that you went through to get the sort of features, I suppose, of the final photograph that you wanted to get, hmm. it does have that sort of sense to it with those, those white flares, the bright spots, the fogging of the film. How did you choose the actual places that you wanted to photograph in the first place?
1: Yeah, I, I wanted them to have some relationship to the history that I'm looking at. And so what's on the website, for example, the palm tree, that's... In a location very near Coco's Lagoon, so very near the pier where I collected the water from. You know, in the foliage and also bamboo, that's also in this similar area. And for me, the kind of link was, you know, southern Guam was most hit by downwind radiation. And of course that radiation, you know, gets absorbed by the flora and fauna. And it lives really in the plant's DNA and then carries on reproducing itself. And that, for me, that was connected to someone I was working with called... He's got the most amazing name of Bob Celestial. And Bob Celestial is the head of the Radiation Survivors Network. Mm-hmm. And he is the one that's pushing for Guam to be recognised as
0: downwind status from the US government. It and- seems amazing that we're still talking about this so many decades on. Because it is... I mean, obviously, the the history is to some extent known about what went on mm. over in the Pacific. You know you mentioned the the history being palpable what are some of those effects that people are continuing to live with? Oh uh, numerous cancers
1: then that was particularly the case in Guam. So when I met Bob Celestial he showed me a list of all the cancers that are Recorded, particularly in southern Guam. And so the cancer rates are super high, um, you know, to do with cancers that are linked to exposure to radiation, ionising radiation. And he also showed me a photograph which really took my breath away. So Bob was part of the military. So he's indigenous to Guam, Mm -hmm. Chamorro, and a lot of Chamorro peoples are are enlisted in the US military. And they are given really the... Less desirable jobs. So he was involved in the cleanup of the Marshall Island testing, and so from memory, there was a I think there were sixty seven tests conducted by the US in the Marshall Islands. Mm. So we're talking huge levels of radiation and huge levels of you know radioactive soil and military hardware, etc. Mm. That the military has to somehow do something with, right? And so what they did, and I am sure you'll know about this, they built what they call the Rinat Dome. Mm. And the Runet Dome is a massive, basically, pit or crater that was created by one of the nuclear blasts. And what they did is they um, lined the crater with concrete and then they dumped all the radioactive material into it Mm. and then built a big um, concrete dome over it, which is now leaking. And he told me, oh, sorry, he showed me this photograph where he was basically inside of that dome, you know, building the inside structure to it which would then be laid over with concrete. And he's wearing basically shorts and boots, you know, and they were not given any protective equipment at all. The one time they were given protective equipment was for a photo shoot. Um, You know, so I'm just really passionate about, um, you know, this is not a history that's over. This is a history that's being lived literally in the bodies of these people and in the flora and
0: fauna and oceans um, that we're a part of. And how chilling is it to hear those kinds of stories and to see those kinds of images, of course, bearing in mind that this is the media that you work with.
1: It's super humbling. And once you've seen those images and had stories like those shared with you, for me, I feel there's a social and an ethical responsibility to work with those stories, to to find a mechanism to share them. And uh, uh, for me, I guess that's what the artwork is trying to do.
0: Mm. Because, you know, a lot of people... Listening to this interview, we'll be thinking about some of the the images, some of the photographs, some of the moving images that people will associate with this area and with the nuclear war, the mushroom clouds and that kind of thing, which are, you know, they're pretty compelling. However, we see those kinds of images, but it's less common to see the images of the aftermath of one of those clouds and what happens to... People sometimes in the you know the hours and days after a bomb like that is detonated. Mm. Does Mm. the mushroom cloud literally obscure to some extent the history? Oh look, absolutely. I mean that is one of, in
1: my view, one of the most problematic images of history, in the sense that the mushroom cloud. You know, I mean it is undoubtedly a spectacular image, right? Um, It's awe inspiring. You know, it shows this enormous scale, this unfathomable kind of sense of destruction. But of course, as you just said, it shows us nothing of what's happening on the ground below it. It keeps us in this sort of elevated position above whatever is happening below, and as a result, it divorces us from even trying to comprehend this sort of enormous destruction, you know, to, to people to lands, to oceans, but also, as you'll know, radiation is insidious. It, it takes a very long time to break down. So, you know, encompassed in this image is a future that isn't even being recognised. Why do you think the United States doesn't recognise this? Well, they do recognise it um, in the sense of, you know, there is the radiation, the Downwind Radiation Act, and so, for example, Guam does get some compensation um, as do veterans who worked on various, you know, military sites linked to nuclear testing. Mm. Um, the Marshall Islands have had recognition, but the reason, in, in my view, that uh, the US doesn't fully compensate is obviously to do with cost. Mm. And then there's also an interest, a military interest, a present-day military interest for America to retain bases, particularly in Guam,
0: mm. and because I suppose of the situation in. The Asia Pacific, it it continues to have those interests, yeah. and those bases are of a continuing use. But of course, like you say, radiation doesn't pick and choose who it affects. Mm. It it affects everything because it's in the environment. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's everywhere. Um, I, I think
1: you know, if I can um, reference Bob Celestial again, when we were talking, I asked him how he felt about the, the sort of present day threat between the U.S. and particularly China. And, of course, that is why there are so many military in Guam, but also on Tinian Island. And, you know, the likelihood of that war, if that were to happen, being a nuclear war, is quite high. And I asked him pretty much that question, you know, how how do you feel about that? And he said, oh, well, we've already been nuked. And it was just so matter of fact that, again, you know, it's incredibly humbling. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's pretty confronting, isn't
1: it? Yeah, very, yeah.
0: So a long legacy, clearly, of the area and yeah. of the treatment of the area by big world powers. Is there an acknowledgement that they may yet end up being the centre or the ground zero of of another campaign in the Pacific? I mean, I think for Bob
1: Celestial and his, his group, the Radiation Survivors Network, you know, their their main focus is really on reparations for what happened in terms of the Marshall Island testing. But, of course, there's a whole other group of activism, particularly coming out of... Guam, but also Tinian and Saipan. That is really about the present day militarisation of those areas, and in, in my view, you can't divorce the histories. You know, one is, is a direct result of the other. Um, mm. And even you know, Tinian Island is—it's a really small island. The local population is around about two thousand, but at the moment they're building this massive divert airfield, which is taking over huge areas that are ancestrally significant and, you know, blocking them off, basically, from access. And the reason for that military base is in case Guam gets, you know, in a of commas, nuked or blown up, that US military will be diverted, literally, to Tinian Island. Um, so the, f- the kind of forethought in terms of the, p- the planning, the military planning, is just phenomenal. And that's also part of what's palpable when you're there.
0: It feels like ongoing, but somehow a new chapter in colonisation.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Militarisation, colonisation. Yeah, it's the same strategies.
0: Mm. So what are you hoping to achieve in terms of, you know, with the exhibition? What sorts of things are you hoping people will take away from seeing this work? Part of it is a, um,
1: a sort of, I guess, shock, or maybe that's the wrong word, um, like a feeling where, where you're moved by the sense of this history is still really, really palpable now. It's present now, and even although here in Aotearoa we don't live the direct, <laughs> for want of be a better term, fallout of it, it's not far from us. And that the thinking that was aligned with that kind of Cold War era of nuclear testing hasn't gone away. It's just repackaged in terms of contemporary militarisation. So I'm interested in people realising that, but also being moved by the images. And I, I think another important thing to say is that this first showing of the work is the photographic component only. There's also a series of moving images or moving image artworks that are being produced as well where you know you'll hear the voice of Bob Celestial, you'll hear the voice of Auntie Deb, who's an activist on Tinian Island. you're know, talking about this relationship between these past histories and how they
0: connect to present day militarisation. That is Fiona Amundsen. Her new exhibition is Blowing in the Wind. It's on in Melbourne until the 24th of March. Um, Some really beautiful and quite extraordinary photos, well worth a look.